1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through to 27. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Uh, I've spent a lot of this week, and I'm sure you have too, thinking about what it is to live well. Because life is really short. I know for some of you kids, you're looking at me thinking you're really old. Some of you are thinking, oh, it's a midlife crisis. I'm 40. My aunt's really poorly. She's 70. Maybe I might make 80. Halfway there. Feels like yesterday that I was this high. Life's short and eternity is forever. So how am I going to make the most of this life that God has given me for good now and for eternal significance? I was really challenged by David's eulogies. If you weren't able to be part of our service on on Tuesday, there were three different people that spoke about different sections of David's life, both as a man who for decades ran a Christian bookshop and significantly influenced a man who then faithfully led a church in Mighton for years. About what it was like to be a part of a church planting team with David here and about what it was like to be a dear friend to David for the last 10 years of his life in Helen Lay. And one of the things that really struck me, and it may have struck you if you were here, was the consistency of David's life. You could look at him at any one of those stages over any one of that period of his life. And David pointed people to Jesus. Many of you have been richly blessed by sermons and books that Tim Keller has written, who, as Andy reminded us this morning, went to be with the Lord on Friday. He did the same thing. His life was gripped by a conviction to point people to Jesus. And that would be the controlling factor in everything else. There are things that David, that Tim Keller, that faithful men and women have not done because they were committed to doing that. And that's what I want us to be thinking about this evening. Because that is what was front and center for Paul as well. 
And not just for his own life, but with, with a burden for other people to have a similar conviction about how they're going to use their life to bring God glory. And to see how important all of that is and what it actually looks like on the ground. Not just to say it's really important that you do it and off we go. Paul uses these challenging examples of athletics. And we're just going to look at the last four verses of chapter 9 this evening. And athletics in ancient Greece was understood by everybody. You know, they um, gave kids, when they turned seven, they gave them these daily training drills to start putting some athletics and some other sporting things into practice, which might sound a little bit um, heavy for us. But uh, the Greeks had this ideal that they lived for, a noble soul with a beautiful body. And that's what kids were drilled into by mum and dad. And that mentality would have been far more um, passionately felt if you lived in Corinth because every two years they hosted the Isthmian Games. I-S-T-H-M-I-A-N Games. Who's ever heard of the Isthmian Games? Oh, I knew Colin Reeves would know. <laughs> much, much better informed on any subject than I am. Well, I didn't know about them before this week. They were second in importance only to the Olympic Games. And they were hosted in Corinth, which is on an isthmus island, or section of land, hence the name, the Isthmian Games. And every two years, thousands of people would descend on Corinth for about seven or eight things, chariot races, foot races, wrestling, jumping, ja boxing, javelin, and discus. And here's a random aside that I also learned this week. This fascinated me. Um, in Corinth, it wasn't until the second century that they had enough accommodation to host all of these thousands of athletes and guests who would come for the games. Run out of Airbnbs, all the hotels were full. So lots of people who came stayed in tents. Ah. Paul was there, probably around 51 AD, when there was one of these every two-year Isthmian games. So it is quite likely that this man, as we've read through this book, who wouldn't take an income from the people in Corinth in order for there to be anything that would distract from the gospel, was using his tent-making skills to sew the seams on a tent and check the door flaps for people who were coming to these games. It's fascinating, isn't it? And I just, I can only imagine that as he's taking orders from customers, he's telling them about Jesus and justification for faith. Go run your race! Make sure it's towards heaven. And there's this little section at the end of chapter 9 that's all about boxing and athletics, but it's not just a random drop-in. These four verses are a key link between chapters 8 and 9 and chapter 10. What have we seen in chapters 8 and 9? There's this recurring anthem of denying yourself in all sorts of areas. And most recently in chapter 9, we were thinking last week about how Christians shouldn't eat idol food in pagan temples lest a weaker brother or sister would stumble through that. So they needed to deny themselves for the good of others. Then we get to Paul himself. And we looked at Paul's own example as an apostle. And he did exactly the same thing. He didn't insist on his rights 
as an apostle. He didn't use any, in fact, most of the freedoms that were his, of things that he could have done or asked for. Verse 19, chapter 9, Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Paul denied himself for the good of others. And the the discipline, the focus of athletes who've got their eyes on the prize is going to press that point of denying yourself further still. But they don't just talk about where we have been. There are also verses that point us to what we're going to look at in chapter 10. Chapter 10, as we're going to see next week, Lord willing, is a warning passage. It's a big picture overview of the history of Israel with one very simple point. Don't be like the Israelites. The Israelites, verse 6 of chapter 10, they set their hearts on evil things. And because of that, they missed out on the blessings that God had promised them. So if you look back at chapter 9, verse 27, so don't, don't be disqualified from the prize. That's how this little section finishes. Four small brief verses to round out what we've seen about self-discipline and denial and prepare us to think about don't miss out on this great prize. So one very simple, big idea. So simple, there's no PowerPoint. Run to win the prize. Run to win the prize because your eternal crown is at stake. So discipline yourself for it. How do we do that? Verse 25, we're going to see two characteristics of successful athletes. That Then in verses 26 and 27, Paul applies to his own life so that we can see how we can live that out in our lives. That's where we're going. Back to the beginning, verse 24. Paul reminds us that Greek grains were far stingier than races today. At the Isthmian Games, there was no gold, silver, and bronze. There absolutely was not a modern 21st century. If everyone's a winner, you only won if you breasted the tape first. And his point isn't that Christians, therefore, need to nudge each other out of the way because there's only one person who's going to get to glory. His point is every single one of us needs to have the same attitude of the winning athlete such that we will keep running to the very end. That's the command, end of verse 24. Run in such a way as to get the prize. That is the one imperative that drives the whole of this short section. What is it that we have to learn from the athletes? Two things. Firstly, verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Competing is hard. The Greek word that Paul uses for competing is agonizomai. Sound like a word you know? Agony. Agonize. That's what the competing is all about. And it was so strenuous in both the Olympic and the Isthmian Games that there was a 10-month training program that you had to complete before you were allowed to do it. You couldn't compete unless you'd done the 10 months. And if you hadn't done the 10 months, you'd be disqualified. That's how serious this training was. And we can picture something of what the training camp would look like because athletes are still doing the same thing today. I don't know whether it's something wrong in my nature, but I actually can get more interested in training camps than competitions. 
I just find them fascinating kinds of things, especially the windows that you get into. If any of you have been on the BBC website recently, you've seen Anthony Joshua in his new training camp in America. Or you can watch and learn about the Ineos Grenadiers, boxing, cycling athletes, all that kind of stuff. The training camps, they really get me. And they get me because of what these men and women are willing to put their bodies through in order to stand the best possible chance of being successful in their competition. And it's amazing. It's amazing what they're willing to endure. They will wave, most of these athletes go away from home for a training camp. So they wave goodbye to family. They're gone. And they wave goodbye to Friday curry nights and late nights out and snacking in between meals and all that kind of stuff to push their body in ways that would probably break most of us, well, certainly me. You know, the boxers get up way early in the morning in order to make sure that they've consumed the right amount of food so that as they go through all of their weights and drills during the course of the day, their body is gaining body muscle. And sometimes the cyclists and the athletes, they get up and they get onto the road before dawn so that their bodies are getting used to really going flat out whilst fatigued so that they're ready for that feeling of doing like the Giro d'Italia and having to survive for three weeks in a row. It's absolutely crazy levels of discipline. And all of that is so that they can say yes to this regime of getting up at four in the morning and eating horribly gross energy gels that taste awful and doing these specific training routines every single day of the week and just pushing yourself through pain barrier after pain barrier after pain barrier and then coming home and having some masseur just like try to destroy your legs. It's unbelievable level of commitment. Why would you do it? Well, that's a very legitimate question. But if you are going to do it, it's because of the second attitude in a successful athlete. Verse 25. They do it to get a crown. Our eyes are fixed on this crown, which uh, at the Isthmian Games was either made out of dried celery or <laughs> some version of pine leaves, which having just gone through an entire coronation doesn't sound like a great deal to compare with a five-pound gold crown with 444 gemstones, does it? But this crown mattered because you only got this crown if you won, if all of the agonizomai, all of the agony of the training and the competition resulted in you finishing first. But it doesn't last. Dried celery and pine leaves crumble and break. And that's how Paul presses this home to us to himself first and then to us. If, if, if you can see the logic of what athletes are willing to endure, if they would go through all of that dedication, all of the denial, all of the discipline in order to win a reputation that's going to crumble and fade before people can remember who you are and a crown that's going to probably disintegrate before Christmas, if you would do all of that for that crown, how much more should you be willing to give up for a crown that will last forever. Now, what is the crown and prize? That's kind of begging the question, isn't it, really? What is this eternal crown and prize? And how you answer that question is connected to our, how you understand verse 27. 
and what it would mean for Paul to be disqualified for the prize. And we'll get to what it means to be disqualified in just a minute. But first of all, what is the crown and the prize? If you flip back to chapter 3, um, chapter 3, picking up at verse 10, 11 or so, we looked a number of weeks ago at what Paul has to say about teachers in the church. So if you were to be a faithful and good, true teacher in the church, you only build on one foundation, verse 11, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you build upon that solid foundation with effort and faithfulness and commitment to Jesus Christ, which is described symbolically as the gold, silver, and costly stones. And then Paul described that actually there's another kind of teacher who doesn't really care either about being faithful to God or about giving their life in service and ministry. They're the shoddy builder types that are not going to pass building control. They're the ones who are going to just kind of do a quick cut the corners, probably use AI to promote their sermons. And they're the ones whose work is compared to straw, hay, and wood. And Paul goes on in verse 13 to look forward to this day when Jesus returns. And what's going to happen to these two different types of builders? Well, the shoddy builder, verse 15, is going to survive the test in the sense that he's not going to lose his salvation. But he will escape as one escaping through the flames. He wouldn't, verse 14, receive the reward of the builder who's been Faithful, And the word that Paul uses to describe the fire testing the quality of each person's work, testing, it's the same root word that Paul uses in chapter 9 when he describes himself not being disqualified for the prize. So some people will look at that language similarity and what's being described here and say, therefore, what Paul's worried about in chapter 9 is that although he's not going to lose his eternal life, he might lose out on his rewards. Follow the logic of the connection. I don't think that's foremost in Paul's mind here. And here's why. In chapter 10, Paul is not anxious that we look at the lessons of Israel and think there were a lot of believers who escaped the flames but lost out on their rewards. It's a bigger concern. He points us back to the lessons of the Old Testament so that we would see that those who profess to be believers but whose lives show that they're not lose all of the blessings. That's what this crown is. It is eternal life itself. It's the crown of righteousness that's given to all who long for Jesus' appearing, which is why this crown matters so much. This is the one thing you are supposed to strive for with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength in the sense of pursuing something for your eternal good, which is what comes across in verses 26 and 27. Paul wants us to see what this disciplined life in the Christian context is like, because this is how determined Paul is in his life and wants us to be in ours. He wants to get that crown. So, verse 30, 26, Therefore, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. I don't know how you run, if you do run. I'm 
occasionally prone to just putting my shoes on, closing the door, and running for a while. I'll get tired, I'll come home. Paul would be like, what a fool you are, Mr. Midwinter. <laughs> Have a plan. Be disciplined. Have a goal. I'll tell you what Paul's goals are. Verse 19 of chapter 9, it is to win as many as possible, whatever that person's background may be. It is a determination, verse 22, to become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. And if you want to know what that doesn't look like, it doesn't look like a rubbish boxer, which is what I think the parallel is here. You could interpret it as shadow boxing, but that doesn't really fit because shadow boxing has got a purpose to get your iron and train. That's not what Paul's describing. He's not like a boxer who just beats the air. Every jab misses. Every hook comes short. They're just beating the air. There's an opponent in the ring, and they're not connecting with them, which means they are not going to win. That is not what a disciplined Christian does. Paul says, now unlike them, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. That's not because Paul is all about the spiritual and doesn't care about the physical. We know he's not an ascetic. That's the way of thinking of those things. He, he loves and honors the goodness of the creation that God has made. And neither is Paul saying it's a form of self-punishment. Or we used to use the word self-flagellation. This idea that you beat yourself. That's not what he's describing. That doesn't honor the goodness of the creation that God has made either. When you think about everything we've seen in chapter 9, Paul's using body language here, not to separate body and soul, but to refer to his whole being. What does it mean for an athlete and a boxer to go through that training camp? It doesn't mean that you just beat your body and your head can be anywhere else you like. If your head isn't focused in what you're doing, you are not going to be able to push through all those pain barriers. You're not going to keep going with all of that discipline. You will hit eject when it gets too hard. That kind of discipline is all of your mind and all of your body, and that is what Paul is describing here. And he's using this body language to describe that commitment of all of your life. Now, given what he's been through, this striking a blow to my body, I think, is a reference to all of the hardships that Paul has endured in order to be able to share the gospel with the Corinthians. So if you go back to chapter 4, I want you to listen to what it cost Paul to be able to preach the gospel to these people. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 11. Uh, to this very hour, we grow hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We're brutally treated. We're homeless. We, walk, we work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I think that's what Paul's describing when he refers to how he's subjected his body in order to give 
everything he has for the gospel. When Paul says in chapter 9, I am going to win as many as possible and become all things to all people. By all possible means, I might save some. That's not some generic statement of, I'll be as flexible as I can intellectually about some principles that you might want to talk about. That's, I will give my life that you might hear about Jesus. That's what Paul did. So what are we going to do? This is one of those James 1 moments where we daren't hear what God calls us to do and be like the man or woman who looks into a mirror and then immediately goes away and forgets what they look like. We need to have that same sense of discipline in our life. It's not a question of, well, you're full-time or you're not. It's completely immaterial. In whatever calling the Lord has placed upon your life, how are you going to be disciplined in the way that Paul's describing here? I think the first thing that we all need to pray for is that God would open our eyes to help us see that this crown is worth everything. Because we live in a world where there is so much that is vying for our attention and our time and all of the things that we might give It's too easy for us to make Christianity that little bit that we do here and there that doesn't really impact everything else. I was speaking to somebody just this past week who had been through a significant trial and they said one of the things they are most thankful for was how that trial taught them that their faith changes everything about them. And they wouldn't, for all the world now, have avoided the trial and missed that lesson. That's what's being described here. So what does that actually look like on the ground? Because discipline needs real decisions. It's a, a lovely phrase of Warren Wiersbe, in which he says, discipline means giving up the good and the better for the best. Discipline means giving up the good and the better for the best. So what does that actually look like for you and me? Well, perhaps you're struggling in your prayer life. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but perhaps you're struggling in your prayer life. What does discipline look like when it comes to growing in your prayer life? See, the devil wants you to think you're rubbish at prayer but you believe in a God who's just gracious and forgiving about all things, so it doesn't matter that you're rubbish in prayer. Just bumble through your life, and you'll get to heaven fine. God says, you need to be disciplined in your prayer life. So what does that look like? Well, it doesn't look like you have to do it all on your own. If you want to be disciplined in your prayer life, let me suggest a really practical Step. Get to church just a little bit earlier. And don't talk to all of the friends that you might want to speak to before the service and come and join us for the service, pre-service prayer meeting. Or on Wednesday night, when it could be a quiet night in, have that discipline of going out to a home group or coming out to a prayer meeting 
to be with your brothers and sisters. That is not because it's a church membership requirement and you get in trouble if you don't. Or if you don't, you're not going to go to heaven or anything like that. It's because God wants you to grow in your prayer life. And part of the way that he encourages us to do that is alongside one another. So that if you're just getting used to praying and you've not really thought about how to speak to God about all sorts of subjects before, you can come together in a prayer meeting where other people are praying about those things and learn from them, have that accountability of praying with them so that God will help you grow in your private prayer life by being a part of a prayer meeting. That's one thing. Maybe you're hiding your faith at school or in the workplace. And the discipline that you've got to think about is, if, if I stand up for Jesus where I am right now, I am going to lose some friends. That's not a small thing. And I don't mean to underestimate how significant that is. But if you know that there are influences in your life that are dragging you away from the Lord Jesus Christ, discipline is going to be a costly step away from that and towards something else. Others need to think about what discipline looks like in your free time. And if you are in a busy job, your idea of free time... (laughs) Or might be a dream, really. Um, maybe for some of you, free time is just a couple of nights a week. Perhaps others of you are retired. And actually, your entire week needs to be allocated in some way. What are you going to do with that time? The temptation is to think, I just need some me time. And all of us do need to relax. The Lord Jesus Christ took his disciples away to relax. The Bible is not against relaxing. But there can be a mindset, and you'll know whether you're in the, I need to relax or I need to do something else in your own heart. There can be a mindset of any time when I'm not doing something else is just me time. How could you be more disciplined with that time? Maybe you could think about having a neighbor into your home once a week, fortnight, a month, whatever is right for you, to build a friendship that you otherwise wouldn't have in order to tell them about Jesus. Or maybe you need to think about some disciplined prayer time. You're not struggling in one sense to pray, but actually you need the discipline of that prayer time. And maybe you could build a slot into your week, half an hour somewhere, where you pray through the bulletin of the church family, or you pray through the missionaries that the church family supports, or you pray for the updates that you receive from all of the organizations that we have a privilege to be a part of. Or maybe you're older, and you could be a blessing to a younger Christian that you might not think you have any ability to do, but I promise you, if you're willing to step out, you would see young Christians in this room thanking you for doing it. Maybe you could reach out to a younger Christian and just offer to meet up with them. No agenda, no detailed theological study required, 
just time to do life alongside somebody else so that you can speak into their season of life and share with them the faithfulness and the goodness of God that has brought you through challenges that you didn't think you could otherwise have got through. But they have seen through longer years the faithfulness of God that we were singing about at the beginning of our service. However young or old you are, being a disciplined Christian is a commitment for the whole of our lives. And that's what Paul's talking about at the end of verse 27. I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. If you read the Bible enough, you will see that there are lots of times where we need to hold things in tension. And this is one of those times. So, how do we hold together the assurance of our salvation with a description in verse 27 that seems to say that the way I live my life will either qualify or disqualify me from my salvation? How do you hold together grace alone with what seems to be a description of there's something that you need to do or not do? Well, at the beginning of this letter... Paul assured us that Jesus himself will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1. Jesus has got you. God has got you. So you can't be disqualified. You can't miss out because the God of heaven and earth is the one who is going to keep you firm to the end. But we've also got verse 27. And we know that God is the author of all of Scripture and that God never contradicts himself. So how do you hold the beginning of chapter 1 with chapter 9 and verse 27? I think we need to see this verse as one of the warning passages that God uses to help Christians persevere in their faith. I don't think this verse teaches that there's the Apostle Paul thinking that he himself would lose his salvation. Thinking about it this way might help you. Um, Will God keep all of his people safe until glory? The answer to that question is not a trick question. The answer is yes. Excellent. How does he do it? Let me tell you how he doesn't do it. God does not pull every Christian out from the world and take them straight to glory. God doesn't wrap a bubble of protection around you such that you don't experience trouble and hardship. His plan is different. His plan is to work in your life through his spirit and by his word to grow your faith. And one of the means that he uses in his word is warnings like this. This is like a wake-up call. This is a massive siren that goes off to say, Christian, don't shipwreck your life. And the only people who will ignore that warning call are people who aren't genuine Christians. That's what we're going to see in chapter 10. That's, I think, how these two, these two sections hang together. All of this discipline is preparing us to see 
Keep on persevering. And by the way, if you're in a home group, this week we're looking at grace alone. And in week six, we will be looking at perseverance. It's all of these themes tying together. If you want to read about this further, there is no one that I've read this week who is more helpful on this than John Piper. I want to close with a couple of lovely insights I've learned from John during the course of this week. John says this, The race of life has eternal consequences, not because we're saved by works, but because Christ has saved us from dead works to serve the living and true God with Olympic passion. Grace isn't nullified by the way we run. It's not that You have to run really, really, really hard, and so you earn some of it. The point is that our running proves that God's grace is at work in our lives. So you get into chapter 15, and we're going to learn from Paul when he says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was given to me. And Piper makes this lovely reference over to Philippians chapter 3. And reminds us, Philippians 3, chapter, uh, verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That's the key. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Here's the lovely way Piper pulls it all together. Here Paul makes explicit the relationship between running in order to obtain, which makes life serious, and running because we have been obtained, which makes life secure. It's a lovely description. This, he says, is the utterly unique thing about the way a Christian runner runs. We don't run looking at Jesus as though he is a judge and he's merely scrutinizing us while we rely on ourselves for strength. We run as those who've already been taken hold of by Jesus for the prize. We run to win the prize in the power of having been taken hold of for the prize. That lovely way of holding together our election the perseverance of the saints, and being saved by grace alone. If you're a Christian this evening, your salvation is secure in the one who has taken hold of you. Now he calls you to run and take hold of that for which he has saved you.